The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio with Jason and JV, although Jason not with us tonight. I'm JV Johnson. Thanks for being here. Um, We've got a, a returning guest tonight. It's going to be a very interesting discussion. We're going to be talking with Bernie Taylor. He's an author and a naturalist. We're going to, we're going to be talking about the work he's been doing on uh, redef- redating, redefining, and re-exploring and rediscovering, maybe, the great Sphinx. Speaking of social media, we'd like it if you'd go to beyondrealityradio.com and explore our website. Also, look us up on Facebook. It's just Beyond Reality Radio there. And stop by my personal fan page. It's JV Johnson on uh, Facebook as well. So once again, tonight we're going to be talking about the Sphinx. With Bernie Taylor. He's an author and a naturalist. He's got a book out, uh, we've talked about it before, called Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. So we've got a lot to talk about tonight on the program, and I'm looking forward to a great discussion. We will take your phone calls a little bit later in the show at 844-687-7669. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've got a great conversation lined up for us tonight. We've got returning guest Bernie Taylor. He's an author and a naturalist. His website is beforeorion.com, which references his book called Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Bernie, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's great to have you here again. JB, thanks for having me. I listened in on the earlier segment of the program. It sounds great. And we're going to talk about the, the mainstream, the alternative, and the alternative to the alternative. This is a show that everybody doesn't want to, every podcaster doesn't want to stream. This is the, the controversy on the alternative itself. And we're going to come up with a new story, a new version of history that will just change the way you see humanity. And so am I go- do I have to expect um, angry mail, <laughs> Bernie? Is that what's going to happen here after our conversation? Because I welcome oh, it there, if it does. A- well, I, I would say there's a few people that may have been on the show in the past that may not come back on again. But, you know, <laughs> we, we're all moving forward, right? Remember, yeah. you, in, the, in the opening of the program, you can't handle the truth. I mean, are we ready to handle the truth? This is the this is the big show. Um, taking off the gloves and we're going to we're going to dive right into it. All right. Well, before we do that, um, I'm trying to remember when you were here last. It wasn't terribly long ago. Um, it was a few months ago. We did the. The, why I don't believe hallucinogenic drugs have anything to do with consciousness, symbolic behavior, or paleothic cave art. Right, that's right. Um, and you're not going to have, he's never going to be on the program, is he? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what have you been up to since you were on last? So I've been doing more programs. I was at um, a lot of presentations. I was at UC San Diego last week, and I gave a presentation to planetary sciences and astrophysics. Um, and we talked about this this the um, Pelican Caves and the constellations and the images and how it all fit into the hero's journey. And everybody there asked the same question they ask everywhere else I've been. 
because we're all asking, we're trying to find that, that fundamental place from where we come from. So that's where I was last. And before that, I gave a presentation at a progressive Presbyterian church on Darwin Day. And I finally gave the same presentation and they asked the same questions because we're all seeking the same answers. And some of those answers we're going to we're going to explore tonight. Yeah. Now, of course, um, you know, there might be some folks who didn't get to hear our first discussions and where we actually broke down your book before Orion finding the face of the hero. So why don't you take a few minutes here and just kind of lay that out for us so we have something to draw upon as we get into this conversation? Absolutely, because it ties into the, these, some of these images. We're going to talk tonight about the Great Sphinx. So there's a cave in the northern part of Spain near Babao in the Cantabria region. It's called an El Castillo cave system. And there's a panel in the cave called the Gallery of Discs. And this Gallery of Discs is about 33 feet across, 10 feet high, streams these red discs down the center from left to right or right to left, either way. And what we what I was able to determine is that it's got about 30 or so characters that are animal and human beings. And the animal and human being characters are in the exact same order as the Greek constellations. So for, on one end, which is the north, we have Hercules, then we have Aegea, the eagle, we have Pegasus, the horse. We have the dolphin becomes Pisces, Cetus is the sea monster, the sea, which is a seal. Um, we have Orion, and then we have uh, Cirrus as a dog. Above that, we have um, we have uh, a Barbary ape, which is um, the Barbary ape is uh, Gemini. We have um, Ursa Major as as bears, um, and of course, of course, bears. We have um, the great auk is the now uh, the great auk is the uh, Cygnus. We have Draco, uh, a crocodile becomes a dragon, and so forth. So we got a whole bunch of constellations, including the lion. Um, the lion's a really important one. And so what's what's really important, what's what's kind of critical about this panel, is that. We just don't see these characters like we see in other places. We see them in the exact same constellation order in the night sky as the Greeks depicted them in their record. And so someone could say, well, you know, you got a horse over there, you got a bear over there, and, you know, you made all the constellations. That's not what this is. They're in the same order. And so there's no chance. I mean, it's the probability of many, many millions that they possibly, you know, there's no connection between the two. There's, the Greeks had been to the cave. And Greeks and others, this and other caves, and they walked out with astronomy from the distant past. It's the same astronomy that we use today. And these images were embedded. These images are embedded in the wall. They're sort of hidden in there. And the red discs draw our attention to away from them. So it's it's a test. When I gave this test at UC San Diego last last week, I, I mean I started off. I didn't. No one knew except the host what I was going to be presenting, and I gave it to them as a test. And, you know, I drew them into red discs and we talk about red discs and we, all these sort of things. And then I start throwing in these characters and they're like, wait a second, wait a second, where did that come from? Um, but it's a psychological test to see if you can see the, the forest, the trees, or in this case, the animals in the savannah. Um, and so that's where we start from. That's 34,000 years ago. OK, so Gobekli Tepe is maybe 12,000 years ago, Stonehenge, four to five Um you know, the Giza's pyramids 4,500 4, years ago. So we're talking tens of thousands of years before everything else that we have a record of, that we can actually draw a story, draw a story from or draw the constellations from. This is how far back in time so, we're going. Yeah, so I understand. And, and again, we had this conversation, but I'd like to refresh my mind and the mind of the listeners. Um, mm. You're saying that this cave art 
was there. And at some point, uh, Greek travelers visited the cave and they used those uh, images as the references that we now uh, use for our modern astronomy? Absolutely. So it was the Greek uh, Claudius Ptolemy who wrote the, who put together the Algamist, and that is the, the, the source book of modern astronomy. And Ptolemy, he, he was questioned that he, actually in modern times, people say he's a fraud. They say he's a fraud because he saw constel, he, he marked down constellations that he couldn't have seen in his time. And the reason is because the earth wobbles like a top, spinning top, and it, constellations dip below and above the horizon over long periods of time. And he saw things. He actually he chronicled things he couldn't have seen. And so modern astronomers said this guy's a fraud. But they maybe the, perhaps the biggest fraud in history. But they never knew how he did it. But now we can see how he did it because he had been to the caves. But the if Phoenicians had been there, the, the Greeks, the Romans, and I would argue the Egyptians too. And uh, which is the ancient Egypt is the holy grail to alternative uh, history. So John Anthony West was, you know, 30 or so years ago, he, he looked at the Great Sphinx and he said, this is older than, um, he walked away, this is older than conventional um, Egyptologists say. He hooked up with Robert Schock. And that's where we start our story. And with the dating by Robert Schock. Um, your website is beforeorion.com. Is, in, is the information we're going to be talking to about tonight also on the website? Absolutely. So there's a two-minute video that um, chronicles the, the images that we're going to explore today. Our phone number is 844-687-7669. We'll take your calls later in the show. We are talking with Bernie Taylor tonight, author and naturalist. His website is uh, beyond, or excuse me, beforeorion.com. His book is also called Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Tonight we're talking about the Sphinx. And uh, let's start here, Bernie, by kind of outlining, or outlining the uh, traditional wisdom. What, what were we told about the history of the Sphinx as we were going through, let's say, grade school or whatever, whatever it happened to be? Absolutely. So the great mainstream archaeologists say that the, the Great Sphinx was a mound, a limestone mound. And that there were, it was geolog, it was roughly geologically formed. So the outer walls of, of this kind of enclosure, as well as the fundamental body and head. And then they say they believe that um, um, ancient Egypt, ancient Egyptians, they carved out the face to be similar to somebody, maybe a pharaoh. They don't really know. And that they they carved out the body in some places where they could make it look like the body of a lion, and they re- reinforced other sections. And they believe that the, the Great Sphinx is roughly about the time period of the, of the, the pyramids at Giza. Um, and that the face makes sense because the, there's very little weathering on the face, um, or at least the weathering is, is similar to that of the, the, the Egyptian pyramids at Giza. Um, and so um, Robert Schock comes along at the invitation of John Anthony West. And Schock's work is really a criticism of the Egyptologist. He doesn't actually come up with an answer, and I'm going to explain that. So Schock said that if you look at the outer walls of this chamber that the, the Sphinx kind of indentation it sits in, there's horizontal and, the, and there's vertical patterns. And he says that the, the vertical weather patterns came from a time of intense rain, and the rain was kind of seeping over, coming over the edges, seeping down to the cracks. And he believed that happened during a, a very wet period, which had to be prior to six or 7,000 years ago. And, and prior to that time, the, the, the greater Egyptian area, at least like all of North Africa, was more humid and there were huge lakes the size of the Great Lakes of the United States. 
Um, and so there's a lot of water and monsoon rains and all that sort of stuff. And so he said, originally came in and says, got to be more than 6,000 years old. He then pushed it back to about 8,000. And now he's at about 12,000 years old goal, which directly aligns with Atlantis because he's an Edward Casey fan. Um, and so he's on team Atlantis and it all, all the stars align. And, um, you know, that's, that's his story. Now, there's other geologists. So if people in alternative world say, well, shocks to geologists, he knows better, so, so on and so forth. Well, that's not exactly true because other geologists have a different story. A pair of Ukrainian geologists wrote a paper, um, and it's a geological aspect of, of the problem of dating the great Egyptian Sphinx. And what they say is that the vertical weather patterns are actually from water, um, and it's like ocean type of tidal water. And they say it's at least 800 years that that formation of that outer chamber or that wall is at least 800,000 years ago because that's the type of weathering you should you could find from that pattern. Did you say 800,000 years ago? 800,000 years ago. Exactly. So you can pick your geologist. And they're saying so what they're saying is that 800,000 years ago there was there was water elements pushing against that that inside the enclosure of the sphinx which created that formation. So so if you pick your geologist between 800,000 years ago and now shock with his, you know, Atlantis 12,000 years ago. And so if 800,000 years ago you could have this, this weathering pattern by water, uh, by sort of tidal water, you, between 800,000 and, you know, 400,000, you could have had that the, um, vertical patterns coming, the seeping that shock um, says is 12,000. That's really important. We can go, you can actually go back millions of years in, this, in the greater Egyptian region inland and there's uh in wadi el hiltan there's fossils of whales and so the 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 giza pyramid is in a, a let's say a um a very lowland flat area and that whole section the giza um delta is fundamentally a um it's it's flat and historically water had come up and there had been shallow seas that even took whales and and um, sharks and other animals and so we can't really look at if it's a geological primary geological formation, everything finally except the head of the Sphinx, we have to look at geologically and we have to look at the big picture and we have to, you know, not in terms of Atlantis or these other things. So that's the that's the geological story of the Great Sphinx. And the mainstream archaeologists probably aren't that far off. Um, but there's another story that came out. And have you had Robert? Sorry. Yeah, I just want to before you get into the other story, I want to ask about uh, just you know everybody can essentially picture the Sphinx in their head. I mean, I'm sure at some point or yes. another we've all seen a picture of it, talked about it, whatever it happens to be. Um, these uh, weathering patterns that you're talking about, these water erosion patterns mm-hmm. that you're speaking of, where exactly would we find those? Are they on the Sphinx itself, or are they They're actually on? If the Sphinx sits in like an indentation, with right. kind of a walled indentation, and they're on the out, they're on the walls of that indentation. Okay, so on the uh, it's not on the Sphinx itself. It's on. It's not uh, on the Sphinx uh, itself. Okay, right. okay, I understand. But but we're assuming, or we've we've determined that uh, the 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 Sphinx itself and those walls uh, come from the same time. Correct, and okay. so the ancient Egyptians had many times over kind of fixed up the walls. Oh, it's not the walls. The um, the the body of the sphinx and they recarved it they added blocks and so it's very difficult to tell by looking at the actual sphinx what the date of it is and so that's why they look at the the walls of the so-called outer chamber 
Okay, now it's starting to make a little bit more sense to me from a visual perspective. Okay, so we have these different theories, and we've got these different discussions going on, and you said we've got something else to bring to the table. And so the other one is Robert Boval. And everybody, we, all you listeners, listeners have seen Agent Aliens and other programs and seen this Orion Constellation Theory that in, includes the, 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 three, the three main pyramids. Remember, there's more than three pyramids on the Giza Plateau because there's probably about there's three plus three, six others. But they don't seem to have fallen to the theory. Anyway, the three major pyramids plus the, the Sphinx somehow align to the exact same time in the night sky as Atlantis 12,000 years ago, or Plato's Atlantis 12,000 years ago. And the story's over because it's, it's all proven and all this sort of stuff. And because that's what timing to the vernal equinox, because everybody times their constellations of the vernal equinox, according to Baval and Hancock. And it all all the stars align at that time. And so um, and, and so Shock has wrote co-authored the book with Baval and they synchronize their theories to have um, to be on Team Atlantis together and. Shock is out there doing Atlantis tours. You can get him on the program. He can tell you all about Ed Casey and the vision and all that sort of stuff. And so we have we have we have another story out there. There's a fellow, an Italian named Armando made. You can get him on the program. Armando said that that um, Bouval isn't really that far off. He's just looking at a wrong time period. And Armando May says that it was thirty six thousand years ago, because that's when Leo the lion in the shape and the form of the Sphinx was actually correctly aligned with the other um, figures on the pyramid at the Giza complex. So Armando May wrote a book called um, um, Ancient Mysteries, and he re- he actually recently, after reviewing my work, he he mis- he changed his a bit, and I wrote the afterword to his book um, to explain the updates and what we what what has been found based on my work. And he's going he's going forward in my direction. He's modified what he's doing. So how did he come up with 36,000 years ago in addition to the whole thing aligned? Align. There are two lists of kings. And these lists of kings are the, the, let's call the ancient pharaohs further back in time. And they both go to about 36,000 years ago. And the question has always been asked, well, are these real or not? John Anthony West said they were real. And John Anthony West believed that the origin of the Sphinx, maybe not the actual construction of the Sphinx or the carving, he believed it was back to 36,000 years ago. And so he was not on Team Atlantis. Um, and so Mondo May kind of took borrowed some of um, borrowed some of Val's ideas, borrowed some of Jonathan West's ideas, and he came out with this phenomenal book, um, um, Ancient Mysteries. And um, it's out there. It's in multiple languages around the world and off Amazon and all that sort of stuff. So we have multiple theories about the Great Sphinx. And uh, they, they all have these different timings, but each one of their timings coordinates to some other artifact. So whether it be Atlantis, whether it be the, the List of the Kings, whether it be the, um, you know, 800,000 years ago when that was a, uh, a tidal area. Um, so everybody's everybody. No one can actually no one has been able to actually date the origin of the Sphinx. What they're doing is they're dating. They're trying to date other things and then coordinating or collaborating those with the Sphinx. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Now, let, let me just ask a couple of what might be naive questions here. If 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 it was built 800,000 years ago, well, who- it wasn't built. So geologically, the the, 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 the fundamental structure before it was carved, would have been formed 800,000 years I ago. I see. OK, so that could have been uh, just a big, big rock. Is fundamentally what we're saying exactly exactly and the and if in that part of the you can look at images in that part of the the desert there's a lot of these type of 
objects out there. Um, I live in, in Oregon near the coast, and I, I, I can see these sort of things um, on the coast where, um, where they're weathered down by both the, 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 the wet, the wind, the ocean, and rainfall. Um, so this is, this is not unique at all. Um, and so the, the question is, okay, we're going back to, so who, which geologist do you, do, you do you choose? Which geologist do you believe? Which astronomer do you believe? And which Egyptian records do you believe? Because they're all different. And that's the that has that has historically been the problem with dating the Great Sphinx. We're talking with Bernie Taylor. We're talking about the Great Sphinx. And uh, Bernie, we've got about let's see, we've got about six minutes here. Is that enough time to get into the next part of this let's story? Let's do it. Yes, yeah, six right. minutes. So, right, let's go. Let's, so we're going to go back. To, we're going to go back about twenty minutes. We talked about this gallery of discs, and we had all these all these animals, including the lion, and that the lion, the crouching lion, is the. Um, is the um, the constellation Leo, and it was a, it's a summer solstice time period because some of the animals is a there's a juvenile um, li- a kitten a kitten lynx pressing against a mo- against the mother's rough. There's um, there's a there's a fledging gold eagle that hasn't flown yet mid June time period. You get a few different animals, so it's telling us that this scene that we're looking at here is a summer solstice image. Okay, that all these constellations as they serve at that time of the year. Now the this this lion is there's superimposed over it with a this large carnivore and this large this crouch this actually a sitting carnivore has the head it has, it's missing the nose just like the great sphinx it has that teardrop shape on its forehead just like the great sphinx but most importantly it has the nemi's headdress okay mm. so which was a symbol of pharaonic power that the that was worn in ancient Egypt by the rulers, and so we have this this um, this soup this large carnivore with this Nemi's headdress superimposed over the Great Sphinx, and the, the, the head of this this carnivore is much smaller than, of course, to the body of this this huge lion, which is fundamentally ten meters across, which is exactly as the the head of the Great Sphinx is relative in size. To the body of the of the being. Okay, so the, what the, the Egyptians did is they copied from something else, or so, uh, let's say, we'll just call me Egyptians. Okay, that they 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 copied from somebody else who had this smaller head on top of the larger lion's body, and we find the same representation in this gallery of discs, this panel in Spain from thirty four thousand years ago. It's a theriantrope. There's lots of theriantropes on that panel. There's a man who merges with a horse to become a centaur. There's a horse that merges with the eagle to become the pegasus. There's a man who merges with a dolphin to become a merman. And so in, in the in Paleolithic cave art or in the, the mind of the animist, mer- you merge with the animals to draw strength from it. So in the case of the Great Sphinx at Giza, it's a theriantrope where this, this ruler or depiction of the ruler is drawing strength from the lion. And that's the fundamental story. Now, this before we jump, we have about a minute left. We've got about two minutes left, then we have our top of the hour break, then we've got a good segment on the other side. Okay, so so what, let's so what's a little slightly about ancient Egypt? Ancient Egyptians did not celebrate their big holiday was not the vernal equinox, as Boval, Hancock, um, and shock or saying with their whole their whole Orion constellation timing and all that sort of stuff they got going on there. Their big time of year was the summer solstice. That's that's when they they um, 
That was the new year. It's when they restarted the calendar. But it was also the inundation of the Nile. The Nile actually flooded that, that time and went right up to the feet of the Sphinx, of the Great Sphinx at Giza. So this concept that you have to everything has to be tied to the vernal equinox is 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 garbage because mm. the ancient Egyptians didn't do it. Now there's something else about the ancient Egyptians. They didn't the dynastic Egyptians didn't have the constellation Leo. So how did that how did they come up with this huge Giza complex with Leo tied to the vernal equinox and all the belt of Orion all this sort of stuff when they didn't even have Leo as a constellation in their record? Not until about 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 two thousand years ago it pops up and it's called the Deneb um, disc. But so at the time that the Egyptian pyramids were made, or in even earlier time among the Egyptians, they didn't have Leo as a constellation. So we've got a lot of questions out there. Number one question is um, where did they get Leo from? Where if the Sphinx is Leo in the Paleolithic record, how did it get there? Number two is We've got a whole new timing. How could we have walked down this road of the Orion constellation theory and you know Atlantis and all these other fabrications that are pretty much mainstream on the History Channel right now, and that people people believe? I give presentations and people will say, to me, "Well, what about Leo and the Great Sphinx and the Orion constellation theory? Doesn't this all work out with your, the Paleolithic Caves?" I say, "No, it doesn't. It doesn't even work out with ancient Egyptians." And and there's the criticism of those of those ideas have been um, just like buried by the program, the big program on the History Channel. And so we, this, this, the group think is about what we've, you know, what's been poured on us rather than what we've, we've, the information we've been able to give to objectively evaluate what the story is. Because we, what, what people say is, well, if it comes from mainstream archaeologists or mainstream Egyptologists, and they disagree with us, they're lying. They're holding, they're holding a truth from us, and they're the evil ones. You know, they're the yeah. bad ones. But it's, it's not that way all the time. It's actually probably not way most of them. They're searching for the same answers we are. They're just taking a little slower. They're not jumping to take entire, take constellations of the night sky, throw them onto the pyramid, and say we're all done. Let's sell books. Yeah. And if it, if it was that obvious, everybody would get to the answer very quickly. It's certainly not obvious exactly. in any way. So we do have a lot of this is open to interpretation. All right. We have to go to break here. This is our top of the hour break. Uh, and we're going to um, come back with more with Bernie Taylor. We'll also take your phone calls at 844-687-7669. We're talking about the dating of the Great Sphinx in Egypt. It's a fascinating conversation. It also ties to Bernie's book. It's called Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. A lot more to come. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. We've got a great show for you tonight, talking with Bernie Taylor, returning guest to the show. He's an author and a naturalist. His book is called Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. You can find out more information about his work and the book at beforeorion.com. I had mentioned in the last hour uh, the passing of Dan Blankenship. Uh, those who watch the uh, reality series The Curse of Oak Island on History Channel know exactly who I'm talking about. He's a veteran treasure hunter who in 1965 read a Reader's Digest story about the mystery of the Oak Island treasure. A lot of people read that uh, Reader's Digest story and became infatuated with 
the hunt for that treasure. Dan acted on it and in 1970 became a full-time treasure hunter and has lived on Oak Island ever since. So what does that put us at? 49 years, nearly 50 years. Uh, He passed away on Sunday at the age of 95 years old. And more more work has been done in the last few years because of the work of the Lagina brothers who are featured on the television show, The Curse of Oak Island. And uh, they've gotten closer to than ever before than anyone else has uh, to determining what, if anything, is hidden on Oak Island. Well, Dan passed away. He won't be able to see the resolution of that effort. Um, I will say this one thing, though, because it's kind of circulating on, uh, you know, chat rooms and, and blogs and stuff that... Uh, the curse itself that has been talked about on the program is that uh, six people have died in the effort to find the treasure. And it w- wouldn't be until the seventh person died that the treasure would be found. And if you believe such things, I guess Dan Blankenship um, would be that seventh person. I don't know if I believe that, um, but uh, it's an interesting perspective. Anyway, our best to the Blankenship family. Um, he lived a long, healthy, good Full life, 95 years, but it's never easy to lose a loved one. So our best to the Blankenship family and all those who are involved in the TV show, The Curse of Oak Island, because I know they were a tight-knit family. Um, We're going to be taking your phone calls as well here. Again, our guest, Bernie Taylor, tonight, we're talking about the mystery of the Sphinx. And, Bernie, one of the things that we um, often hear uh, when we talk about the Sphinx, it's kind of uh, goes hand in hand to say the riddle of the Sphinx. What exactly is the riddle part of this? Is it what we're talking about tonight? Well, the riddle of the Sphinx, the, there are multiple Sphinxes, and tonight we're talking about the Giza Sphinx. But we can actually segment off into the Greek Sphinx, because the, the Greeks told the story of Oedipus, um, the famous Oedipus. And um, he was he, he he approached the Sphinx, and the Greeks asked, and Oedipus, sorry, the, the Sphinx asked him the question of, what what begins life on four legs then then two then three and the answer is it's it's the man man that starts as a child walks on two feet then ultimately three feet with a three with a cane and so the what's the, the concept of the sphinx is not purely egyptian because independently we have the sitting sphinx among the ancient um ancient greeks and in this gallery this image from spain thirty four thousand years ago we have the crouching lying with the with the Sphinx superimposed over it, and we have the sitting Sphinx, um, this the large carnivore. So we have actually have both images for, for to account for both two different places. Mm-hmm. Why why all Sphinx don't look the same? Um, and the answer so that the answer to the your question is that there are multiple Sphinxes, and if you if you look at this image, you could actually walk away with you know could be two. Um, and so that's um. But it's a theriantrope. Truly, it's a theriantrope, which is the combination of human right. and animal characteristics, and that's really the, the the essence of the Sphinx itself. Right. It's not a monster. It's a, not a monster per se. On on the hero's journey, he encounters the lion, and he draws strength from the lion. Let's, so here's now, before so here, I'm sorry. Before sorry. we get into and more of that, I do want to take a, a listener call here or two. This is Jim uh, in South Carolina. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks for holding on. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, have you ever heard of the Temple of the Birds? Give me a location. Uh, well, if you place Cygnus the Swan over top of the pyramids, and where Deneb sits is the Temple of the Swans, uh, 
an Englishman about 10 or 12 years ago discovered a archaeologist from the 1800s had found a cavern up underneath this uh, one temple that had birds stuffed in it at the doorway of the two ibises. But anyway, he sent a man and wife team to Egypt over there to identify it. Have you heard of this? So was the author um, of the modern book, The Cygnus Mystery, by, I'm Googling it, it's coming up my Google right now, by Andrew Collins? I believe it may have been. It's a man and okay. wife team. Okay, so Andrew Collins is a smart guy, okay? He's wrote a bunch of interesting books. They're all about Cygnus, and he sees everything as everything, fundamentally anything as Cygnus, okay? You get him on the program, he'll talk about Cygnus, okay? But here's here's what's, here's what's why Andrew Collins' work is important, because he actually lined up the pyramids, the three Giza pyramids, major pyramids, to Cygnus. Yeah, well, that's, what it, that's what I was thinking, and uh, there's a cavern that goes about 300 feet up underneath the plateau. Okay, so here's the question. Very so here's small a, so opening. He, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a question. So Andrew Collins came up with the, the pyramid, three major pyramids being Cygnus, and Vival comes up being the, the belt of Orion, and um, Shock saying it's 12,000 years ago, and the geologists saying 800,000 years ago. Do you realize how many different stories? It's like you know, people, everybody's got an Atlantis. Well, I, I'd say, give me ten Atlantises that you are positively sure are are the one, and then we'll have a serious conversation. That's how ridiculous it is, because uh, everybody. Thing, you measure the three pyramids. The third one's slightly off. Correct. Uh, and it measures up more with the middle of the stars in Cygnus than it does with Orion. And that's what Colin said. That's what Colin said exactly. So what, what we have a unique opportunity in history now is we have we actually have the teacher's edition book to the Egyptology, okay, <laughs> and the Greeks and the Romans and Phoenicians, and we can see where it came from. And the the bird, there's actually two birds in that area of the night sky on this Paleolithic cave. One is the great auk, one's a great auk, and the other one is an ostrich. You know what an ostrich looks like if you cut off its eggs, its legs? Mm, Picture what? it. It's like a swan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yes. And so you have you have an ostrich in the great auk, and uh, so what the what the Greeks the original based on the constellations as they appear the original Cygnus was the great auk. Uh, however, the the ostrich is up there, and so it was another constellation in the night sky that the Paleolithic artists had uh, recognized, and and so. So I can't say what it was, but here's so the whole story. Andrew Collins he talks about the the cosmic egg and the birth of universe, all that sort of stuff. Well, the great auk actually he has the cosmic egg, and we can see the, it's a, it's a, the cos the cosmic egg is a great auk egg, and we have this character who holds the actual egg. And so the in the Paleolithic version, the great auk was a major character. The the the, the ostrich. Was a, was a lesser character. We just don't know what it was. But it, I believe that the ancient Greeks saw that, saw the ostrich, and they cut off the legs and made it a swan. Um, but it, it still wouldn't exactly be the constellation Cygnus because it, it's off by a bunch of degrees in the night sky. 
But that's a that's a good um, good point because what you just brought up is a, another interpretation of the Giza pyramids. Jim, thanks for the phone call. We appreciate you. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, we th- appreciate you joining the conversation. The number is 844-687-7669. I have another naive question here, and then we've got to jump to our next break. There are no naive questions. This one's a bit naive, and I should know some of these answers. Now, are there any um, caverns or, or chambers associated with the Sphinx itself, or are those reserved to the pyramids? Well, it's actually behind, let's call it behind the butt of the Sphinx, there is a temple. And I've, I've actually, I can, I've seen pictures from the outside. I've never been to the Great Sphinx, um, but you can see pictures from the outside. And it's called like the Sphinx Temple or something like that. Um, so the answer is yes. Now, uh, shock. He, on the, the vision of Edgar Casey in a dream, said that there was a chamber below the the right paw of the Sphinx and below, and and all the answers to the universe would be solved if you could go into that chamber. And so, with the help of Edgar Casey Society, they did some, you know, lecture, um, some some sort of seismic dating. I don't know. Actually, not dating. Um, evaluation to find out the the, um, the hole, and they start drilling down towards this alleged subterranean chamber. And all at the verge of getting there. I mean, they were so close. The evil Egyptologists stopped the project. Okay, can you imagine this now? Now, if I said to you, if I had a dream. Edgar Casey, that Edgar Casey had a dream and said, "Below your kitchen, there is a chamber. They'll give you the, all the secrets of the universe." Does that give me the right to start, you know, drilling in your kitchen floor? Yeah, Should be a no. Yeah, I'd say no. <laughs> okay, so, and that's the equivalent of this thing. Okay, and so this started from the this started from the, the Edgar Casey dream and. Um, and they, you know, shock. He, you know, gives all. He, he says the Egyptologists were against him because they wouldn't let him. No. They would reach that point because they were so close. And you know, if you didn't, it, it's not there. Okay, it just isn't there. Um, so anyway, it, are there chambers below? You know, there's probably a lot of cavities throughout that whole region in in the ground, but it doesn't mean that the secrets of the universe are there. Um, and Edgar Casey, and this actually totally debunks Edgar Casey, because if Edgar Casey could actually have seen any of this stuff, he would have seen in his dreams or his visions the caves where you find this this Sphinx on the wall. Right. I mean, it just so I'm I'm not out to debunk Edgar Casey because I think the whole thing is actually nonsense. But if you're if anybody out there is an Edgar Casey believer, you know this was this was the nail in the coffin. Um, if you didn't you know, get it before. His website is beforeorion.com. His book is Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Uh, Bernie, how long ago did you write the book? So I completed it about a year and a half ago, and it probably took me maybe three years to actually do the work. And it followed a previous book, Biological Time, which was how plants and animals are timed and knowledge by indigenous um, hunter-gatherers and ancient peoples. And that was like that was about 14 years ago, and I kind of asked the questions of why are why do salmon run earlier, later, and when how do they do they all smart they, they follow one smart fish or they have, there's some sort of timing mechanism. I looked at the Native American calendars, and I, then I went back in time and said, you know, maybe someone knew this in the distant past, and that drew me to the cave images in in Europe, Paleolithic Europe, 17,000 years ago. Let's go, and I started to evaluate the the biological time and context within that of the Pelothic cave artists. And lo and behold, they had the exact same nomenclatures 
as the as the Native Americans, which tied to the biological clocks or when you'd go hunting and fishing for these these animals, um, which all made sense because the animals haven't changed in 17,000 um, years. And that took me when I started working on when I finished that, I said, I'm, I'm kind of ahead of my time. And I had got I gave scientific presentations and conferences and universities and endocrinology and all these different areas. And I, I said, I'm going to put this on the shelf for 10 years. And I'm going to come back when I came back 10 years later. There's, there have been new dating of or older dating of the Paleolithic cave images, and the El Castillo cave was dated at 40,000 years ago, which became the oldest cave art in the world at dated at that time. And that was super important because then we could push the button, push the limits on how far back, back in time people would have known this. And I, I – I started counting the discs, doing just like I did with the other cave images with tied to the animal timing. And as I started to do that, I said, well, you know, it might be more something more here. And I looked and I saw that I started looking outside the disc and I saw the elephant and the lion and I saw a bunch of um, human characters. I said, oh, my God, that millions of people had seen this, but they hadn't seen this. And I, rec I quickly recognized the reason was these red discs are kind of a – they draw you in like a red stop sign, a red lip lipstick, or McDonald's sign with the red and DQ and Burger King. And, of course, the outer, the outer lines of like a Time magazine. It's, it's, uh, it, it draws us at a most basic level to, um, to the red disc, and I recognize that's why people hadn't seen it, and that's okay. Um, but we're all past that now. And so how did I get into this was um, – through the biological time work, which then took me on my own hero's journey by going through these cave images and, and kind of like rethinking who I am and who, who is humanity and where do we get our information from? In this case here, the ancient Egyptians had borrowed. So we, we believe that we actually, let's say a few years ago, we believe that the ancient Egyptians were at kind of the pinnacle of ancient civilization for their time and that everything they created was new. Um, and of course, uh, Jonathan West and Grant Hancock and others, they said, no, 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 it came from someplace else, but they had no place that it came from. Gobekli Tepe ultimately was, um, was, was unearthed maybe 20 years ago and came pop popular in the last six years, which pushed it back to that there was early civilization, was 12,000 years, but there was no relationship between the art um, and the, arche the archaeology at Gobekli Tepe and the ancient Egyptians. So, yes, there was an early megalithic globetrotter in Tepe, but this, it's not connected to the ancient Egyptians. And it's pretty obvious because the symbology is completely different. Um, and so but what, what the ancient Egyptian symbology is directly related to is these pal this pelvic cave image at El Castillo. Tomorrow night, we've got Heather Ash Amara on the show. She's an author talking about a, her book, A Little Book on Big Freedom. Um, and then Wednesday night, Tanya Richardson, who is an intuitive, will be here to talk about her new book called Angel Intuition, A Psychic's Guide to the Language of Angels. And uh, she'll help us learn how to improve our intuition. And uh, we'll talk about uh, your sixth sense and how you can receive more divine guidance to improve every aspect of your life. And then Thursday, Dr. Bruce Solheim is a returning guest. He's also a distinguished professor of history, an author, and a psychic medium. He's got a new book in his series called Timeless Deja Vu, A Paranormal Personal History. And this book provides 31 more true personal experiences of the paranormal, such as ghosts, telepathy, out-of-body experiences, and much more. That'll be Thursday night's program. Tonight, we are talking with Bernie Taylor. Bernie is an author and a naturalist, also a returning guest to the program. His, his website is beforeorion.com, and his book is called Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. We've been talking about the Sphinx all night. 
you we've we, we've you've told us about several different theories about dating the Sphinx, and uh, you've connected the concepts and the ideas to the cave um, in Spain, and that that's been the focus of your book and your study. Um, so once again, just bringing this back around to the date ideas, why are the dates so important here? Well, the the El Castillo cave dating is thirty four thousand years ago, so the ancient we're going to call them the ancient Egyptians, had been to the caves, they had took this image, and they, in their own time, could have made, could have carved out the, the face of the Sphinx, the head of the Sphinx, and, and fixed up the body. And the, the, enclo- the, the, out, the enclosure area, which has that weathering, both the horizontal and the vertical, could have been from some, pre, pre, some time, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So here's a problem, though, okay? And I haven't solved this one out. So I said earlier that the ancient Egyptians did not have the constellation Leo, at least not in you know early dynastic times. But they clearly have the Sphinx oriented towards the east, and they drew it from this Paleolithic image where, in fact, it's towards the east as well. So was it, was it the ancient Egyptians who first designated that monument as the constellation Leo for, this, for the Sphinx? I don't think so. There was somebody else, because if it, if it was the ancient Egyptians, we would have seen earlier, um, we would actually see in the record the Leo as a constellation, but we don't see it until about 2,000 years ago during Greco-Roman times. So there was some other influence that came into the ancient Egyptians, and I believe it was somewhere around pre-dynastic, around dynastic times or pre-dynastic times. So we're talking between you know 4,000 to 5,000 years ago, not. 12,000 years ago, Atlantis, okay. Um, so there was somebody, there was, so ancient Egyptian, ancient Egypt was a crossroads of civilizations. Uh, and as the, as the, these great lakes in the, in the Great Sahara dried up, people migrated into the Nile Delta and they migrated through the Nile Delta. So you had a mix of cultures. And one of those cultures, I believe, are the ones who, de- who carved out the, f- the first great sphinx. And then later Egyptian pharaohs um, cleaned it up. They dug it out further, improved, you know, here and there. But I believe that it was some. It wasn't the ancient Egyptians who made, who first designated that great sphinx. It was some that had been to the caves in in Spain. But who it was, we don't know. And later in time, the Egyptians had sphinxes, of course, much smaller sphinxes, and they were modeled after this, the great sphinx at Giza. Um, and so there's still a mystery out there of who, in fact, made the Great Sphinx. But the mystery of the origin of the Great Sphinx, we can now kind of put the rest that it goes back to 34,000 years ago. There's also another question that I actually addressed in the book, but I don't address on, on, the, on the podcast of the radio programs, is what is the origin of the, this El Castillo panel? Because the, the, the Pelican Cave artists didn't come up with one or one or two or three artists didn't come up with this entire const- body of constellations. Right. Um, it just didn't happen in this, in this, this elaborate mythology with the cosmic egg and the hero on his journey and all these sort of things that there's an origin to that. And I talk about in the last chapter of my book and, uh, but as maybe we can have another show about it, but it, as a, there is an origin to this El Castillo cave panel that dates back much further in time. And it's not in Spain. And it's not it's not in Egypt. So that's out there for the for the um, 
for your crew to wrap its head around for another show someday, right? Absolutely. Um, let's take another uh, listener call here before we run out of time. This is TJ in Rhode Island. Hey, TJ, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Great. And I have a question for Bernie, because I noticed this fascinates me because many of these um, types of uh, uh, investigations usually involve the traditional, what I would at least call Eurocentric positioning. And how how does it compare if you've done any, or do you plan on doing comparison, say with Chinese uh, prehistory civilization, because they have that unique view that they do not thank the West for their culture. They take no uh, credit for a mic. They also have their own mythology where they place Panku, the first man, millions of years ago as being living on the earth? Good question. I lived in China in my early 20s, and I'm, I'm 54 now. And I, I remember I was on the bus once with a Chinese person on one side and an Italian on the other. And the Italian said that Marco, that Marco Polo brought the spaghetti, a pasta, to China. China said that Marco Polo stole from China and brought it back to Italy. <laughs> 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 it's a true story. And it really goes back to where. So Pongo is actually a really good story. Pongo is about the is the, the creation of the universe, the cosmic egg, that singularity. And Kong, Pongo wakes from the cosmic egg and through his axe, he splits in two, makes makes the yin and the yang. And Pongo um, then, you know, the, the constellations splay out to the night sky and Pongo himself becomes his body, be, you know, his head becomes the mountain and his body become the trees, all these sort of things, which is fundamentally the same story. It also holds up the earth. He holds up the sky during that time period, too, which is fundamentally the story of the Titan Atlas. OK. Yeah. Um, and so so the answer to your question is that th- there is a model myth. There's a story deeper in time. And we find this Pangu character fundamentally in this Pelican cave image. And so. Going back, the Chinese civilization doesn't go back 34,000 years ago, but we can find the origin of their myths in this place as well. There's another, there's an interesting constellation among the Chinese is they they designate the the, um, star Sirius as a dog. Well, so did the Greeks and so did Native Americans as people in North Africa. So why do people all around the world designate Sirius as a dog when it doesn't look like a dog? Because they come from a common origin. And so I think that's that's a, that is the like the tie um, that connects people around the world. And, but Pongo is a very good one that you brought up. That yes, there was that singularity, there was that cosmic egg, and there was the hero that broke from his egg from the egg. And that story is on the Nordic, the, the Orphic Greeks, it's told among the ancient Egyptians, the Dogon. It's like, um, and we see it in this pillar of the cave We see the cosmic egg, and all the constellations just break free. Um, into the night sky in the Big Bang. Well, Thank what, you. That's what fascinates me about it is the fact that it is dated so far back in history relative to what you usually see in the Middle East or in the others, because it goes back millions and millions of years in their time frame. You mean the Chinese? Yeah. I mean, yes. they don't have this, you know, say the traditional Judaic 5,000 years ago the Earth was formed type thing. This goes back much further, which leads to more interesting questions, I think. Well, interesting. You know, I grew up in the New York area, and there was there to, I had a lot of Jewish friends, and they used to, Jewish friends used to tell a joke that, you know, the Chinese civilization only goes back four thousand, but the Jews go back five. What did we eat for a thousand years? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. On that, okay. I'll have so, you know it. I'll let you go, and I appreciate the time. So, so the TJ, Chinese thank did, you. They, Chinese go four thousand. Yeah. Yeah, TJ, thank you for the phone call. We appreciate you. Always was, have always have great questions. 
That was a clean joke, wasn't it? Yeah, that was perfectly fine. I, you know, in today's day and age, I'm never sure, but I think that one was fine. Um, we only have a couple minutes left with you here, Bernie. What are you working on next? So what I'd like to be, well, I love doing podcasts and I love, um, I do a lot of mini, mini documentaries, two minutes, right? I put them on YouTube and yeah. then my webpage, Coraline.com. But clearly the next stage for me is to do, to become part of like a Netflix documentary or a travel channel or something like that. So if someone out there is listening and you're in, in the, in the Hollywood or the Bollywood scene, you know, let's talk and connect with me. And because this is a visual, it's incredible. And it tells a story that nobody else is telling, but it is the story everybody else tells because it's the core of all the stories. So we can talk about myth and monsters. We can talk about astronomy. Um, we can do We can do with the cosmic egg and all these, these great myths that, you know, we, we find around the world. Um, so that is, that is the target for the next one. Um, and I'm still giving presentations. So if you're, you're on the West Coast in some sort of organization, so I'll go to universities and, and, and um, colleges as well as churches, um, progressive churches. And I've done presentations at high schools. And um, so I love getting out there, giving the talk and having testing people live. And you can see, see their expressions, their faces like, oh, my God, how did we miss that? And then every slide they're challenged again because they missed it again. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. And and continuing the journey, end of my journey, hero's journey, is to tell the story, share what I learned. And I had I one more question occurred to me here about the work you've done studying the cave art. Um, you kept keep mentioning the red discs, which are very, very apparent when you look at the photographs. Um, and you talk about those discs actually diverting your eye from the bigger picture, if you will, and, and these, these things you're talking about. Were those red discs added, added at a different time? Or no, same time. They were. And how we... How, we actually were dating them. We're dating the panel through the red disc. The, the panel is limestone, and calcium carbonate secretes from the limestone. And when it goes over, let's say the red disc as actual man-made art, we can say that we, if we can date the calcium carbonate, it's then we have to say that that red disc must must be at least as old as the calcium carbonate. It might be a day older. It could be a million years older. Okay. Um, and so if you take a bunch of red discs and you can have you can date the calcium carbonate over them and they're all within a few thousand years, you can probably say, you know, this is probably it's not a million years old. It's probably a thousand years or so older. Um, and so the um, that's how that's they're dated by the red discs. That's that's pivotal. Got it. Got it. OK. Because no, no one saw anything else. In the, but so that's that's because no one had seen anything in modern times. No one had seen anything besides the red disc. But now you could actually go look at the calcium carbonate over many characters in it to see what more common dating, which was not expected when they did the original red disc studies. And to take a page out of TJ's question, um, do uh, Central American uh, cultures share some of these ideas as well? Um, good question. Um, so the answer is the more fundamental ones, such as the cosmic mountain, um, the pyramids, the pyramids in Egypt have fundamentally the same structure as the, the Mayan so-called pyramids. Right. And they, they, they're in flat areas where there are no mountains. Um, so I would say that the, 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 the man-made pyramids and, you know, the, the, the steeples and the churches, they are the connection between the earth and the sky world in the same way as, as the mountain is Mount Everest and Olympus, Olympians were on Mount Olympus and Jebel, uh, at, hero Hercules climbed Mount Atlas, now Jebel Toakal. 
around the world we find these cosmic mountains and when we when we either we find either the temple on top of the mountain or we or if it's too flat with there's no mountains we find a temple that was made in this place so that that the fundament these fundamental archetypes the the avianoid the bird man who transcends to the the spirit world found all around the world um, the river of transformation, which of course in biblical times, but we find that around the world as well. In, in, among the dreams of man, the two most common are the cosmic mountain and the, body, the water of transformation. So they're, they're in our collective unconscious. Right. Okay, well that's going to do it for us tonight. Another fantastic program. Bernie, thank you so much for being here again. Absolutely. Love to come back again. And once again, it's beforeorion.com. Any other place you'd like to send folks to get more information about your work or your books? Oh, before Orion, I use on Reddit and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter, across the social media platforms. Follow me, um, like it, pass it on, and, you know, it's just... You know, keep the ball rolling. It's just a lot of fun to do. All right, terrific. We'll have you back again for certain. It's uh, Bernie Taylor again before Orion.com. All right, let's see here. We've got a great show lined up for you tomorrow. Heather Ash Amaro will be here to talk about her book, A Little Book on Big Freedom. And then Wednesday night, it's Tanya Richardson, who is an intuitive with her book, Angel Intuition, A Psychic's Guide to the Language of Angels. And then if we look ahead into uh, Thursday night's program, Dr. Bruce Solheim, a returning guest to the program, also a distinguished professor professor of history, an author and a psychic medium. He's got a new book out in his book series called Timeless Deja Vu, A Paranormal Personal History. And this book provides 31 additional accounts of true personal paranormal stories, including topics such as ghosts, telepathy, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, aliens, premonition. We've When we had uh, Bruce on before, we said there are some people in this world that are just lightning rods for paranormal activity, and Dr. Bruce Solheim is one of them. I think this is the third book, if I'm not mistaken, in the series of books. It's second or third. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I'll have to check on that. But um, uh, it's a great it's a great conversation, and, and Dr. Bruce Solheim is a great guest, so we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, stop by the Facebook page, Beyond Reality Radio. Also stop by my Facebook page, J.V. Johnson. And if you haven't found the YouTube channel yet, you should do that, too. Go to YouTube and just search J.V. Johnson. You'll find it there. Uh, have a great night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.